The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. And we welcome you back one more time to Afternoons with Mike here on the Shepherd Radio Network. Such a privilege to be with you and what a privilege it is to once again, second time inside a week to welcome back Dave Zanotti. He's the president of the Public Square the American Policy Roundtable, and my goodness, we have had a week. You know, getting you two times in one week is not without a real cause, if you will, and that cause is this little speech that was made a couple of nights back uh, called the State of the Union Address. So we're going to get into that. Dave Zanotti, welcome back. Hi, Mike. Always good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, it is great to uh, be able to look back and, you know, Dave, I, I, I'm kind of chuckling just a little bit because some of what I heard and I did not hear, I, I really don't know that I could have hung in there. I know you did. And that's something that I appreciate about you. Uh, the whole speech was riddled. Some say the entire speech was uh, interesting and maybe lacking in some things. Uh, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to make that statement out uh, other than to say that's what I've heard. But Dave, I know you have heard it all. And what I did hear, there were enough things in there to make me pause and say, is that right? Was that true? Uh, And I, I don't think so, right? Mike, I'm really glad we've got an extended period of time to talk about this because uh, this is much more than politics, uh, and it's it's much more than re-election politics. In fact, um, that speech, and we're still trying to figure out if we can get to who wrote it. It looks like from the news reports that there was a meeting in Camp David on the speech and that um, all of the Biden speech writing team was involved. Um, And that's important because you can track the philosophical and historical sources of presidential speeches by getting a handle on who wrote them and where they they come from. It's important for us to understand before we even get into this speech, it is the nature of how the Biden administration is currently set up. And this is the Biden presidency. There's someone sitting in the office of the presidency in the White House that's been there since the time of Bill Clinton. Um, I would suggest that this individual is the longest serving non-elected president of the United States in the history of our country, and that person is John Podesta. John is the founder, along with George Soros, of the Center for American Progress, which is the most radical organization functioning in America today in regards to moving America from the founding ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to a secularist administrative state. Now, I'm not making any of this up. Every bit of it is verified online in sources directly from the Center for American Progress. You can can find a, a tremendous amount of information about Mr. Podesta, Um, all across legitimate research sources. And this has been going on since the 90s. Uh, And then in 2003, when George W. Bush was elected president in 2000 and Mr. Podesta was out of the White House, that's when he and Mr. Soros founded the Center for American Progress. But back in the Clinton administration, John Podesta uh, interjected a form of doing business in government that's foreign to the United States Constitution. Mr. Podesta suggested that the administrative branch of our government, the White House, has the power to implement public policy through federal agencies with almost no congressional action whatsoever. This is called the administrative state. This is a model that Woodrow Wilson um, and uh, Frank Goodnow uh, developed watching the European models of government back in the 1900s. The idea is that America is a democracy where your opinion gets recorded, but in essence, all the business is done by a ruling elite. 
And the role for the Congress in this administrative state is to simply pass broad-based language that gives direction to the administrative state. But the execution and accountability of everything comes from the White House through federal agencies. And here's how it was done. Here's how it began, Mike, back in the, in the Clinton administration. Uh, when Congress began to pass environmental laws, uh, clean water, clean uh, air, all, all that sort of stuff, cap and trade as it accelerated. Now, the, you know, the United States government has been very interested in the environment since the, er, easy to, to, to note back the early 1900s with Teddy Roosevelt in conservation and national parks, et cetera. But this entire idea of using environmentalism as a weapon really crystallized in the 90s. And so what John Podesta looked at was a wonderful opportunity for government to be able to take control over every area of life through environmentalism. So what he suggested is that the Clinton administration didn't need congressional approval to move on uh, the already existing environmental language and law. They just needed to tell the world what it was going to look like and what they were going to do because and, and run it all through EPA and all the other agencies that touch upon environmental questions because they were simply administering the law and that's their job. And if anybody had a problem with this hyper-aggressive public policy being run out of the White House, then they could sue. And if you don't like it, we'll see you in court. This is when it began. Well, we saw it crescendo in President Biden's State of the Union address. This is the most pronounced example of the godless equation of the administrative state, of the, the White House doing everything by executive order and through agencies, and Congress really just being comic relief. That's what we saw. Yeah, that's well said. Comic relief. There seemed to be a lot of reaction audibly. I mean, a lot of boos, a lot of shouting out. Uh, some were calling him a liar. There were statements that were made that were incredibly, uh, it's almost like they were purposefully in there just to draw right. the attention toward that. Would you think that is a possibility? Well, that's, that's, ex that's good discernment on your part. And this speech was written to light up the opposition and to provoke them at every level. Now, let's get about to the facts on this. Um, to show you how far from reality the president's speech was in regards to public policy, um, all you have to do is look at the Washington Post article that fact-checked about a dozen points that the president made regarding policy in the speech. And the, the Washington Post... They admit they, they, they don't give Pinocchios in regards to speeches. Uh, and, and they said that up front. That's not, you know, that's not the, they, they don't want to fact checking a speech. They don't give out a Pinocchio for Pinocchios, pants on fire, that kind of thing. But they clearly refuted almost everything in the 12 to 13 points that they brought forward. And look, the Washington Post is the most gentle critic that President Biden would ever have. They hadn't. They, they, they had, it was, it was embarrassing. It was awkward. The fact checking that, and they showed how the president's writers of the speech selectively chose data, changed dates and times, re, you know, put the best face on something so that he could make this claim. But the fact is all of that was just wrapping paper. All of that was just designed to make you think you were hearing a policy speech. What you were really hearing was a bully king stand at the pulpit and tell Congress, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I will veto it. And if you don't do what I tell you to do, then my friends in the administrative agencies and the media are going to come after you. And if you don't like it, tough luck. Yeah. He's used that kind of tough language. Like you better bring some F-16s with you. If you're going to take us on, it, it's it. Bullying looks bad in any format. It's bad when a Republican does it. It's bad when a Democrat does it. Um, I have never, and most I think most people would it candidly admit, most people have never been comfortable with Donald Trump's uh, approach to communications when he gets in that bully pulpit zone. Um, I I don't like it. I you know let, let's let's put this in perspective, Mike. For years, from the founding era of our country, the presidents of the United States would send their State of the Union address in writing to the Congress by mail. They would deliver it. 
Hmm. They never made the speech. They did not make the, the speech in person. For the president of the United States to enter into the Hall of Congress and stand uh, where that where the president stands is an invitation. It is not required by the Constitution, and by its very nature, it bespeaks the awkwardness of the competition between these two branches of government. Now, we've been told incorrectly in school that our government is built upon three equal branches. That's not true. It's, it's an absolute fallacy. And people who have studied the Constitution, the notes of the Convention of the Constitution, and the Federalist Papers will honestly tell you, honest historians will tell you, that the framers understood they were setting up Congress to be the most powerful of the branches of government, that the uh, executive branch would be second, and the judiciary a distant third. So these are not equal branches of government. So for the president to walk in, any president to walk in, of any party to walk in and tell Congress what Congress is going to do is not an American model. It's something different than that. Wow. That is a great bit of insight right there. I don't know that I would have heard in my background, which is hardly uh, the same as what kids are being taught today in school, that they were equal, but pretty close to it. I think that would have been the mindset that I grew up and that they were all accountable one to another and that they were all kind of helping each other kind of have a balance of power. But we're not seeing that balance work out at all right now with these executive orders that are coming fast and furious and seemingly only in one direction and any opinion. Now, this is the this is an area where you were talking about right now earlier, the crescendoing effect uh, where this whole thing, if you view anything other than what the progressive mindset is, you're crazy. I mean, that's nuts. That's what's that's being called right now. And there's not like, well, let's sit down at the table and talk about it. It's guns flaring already, to use an analogy that's probably not a good one in today's age. Well, what we saw looked more like a script written for the World Wrestling Federation. Um, it, it, it just wasn't real. It was, it was all bait and switch. It was all designed to provoke. It was, um, I, I, and again, I don't care whether Donald Trump's standing in, uh, there and, and giving us the billionaire businessman, I'm smarter and bigger and tougher and richer than you, or Joe Biden standing up there acting like a bullying lifeguard. Uh, and it's going to throw you out of the pool. I don't care which position we're in. Bullying does not fit the presidency well at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm using this term very carefully because we've often talked about the president having the bully pulpit, uh, a term that was uh, sort of associated with Teddy Roosevelt. And that's the idea of an enthusiastic pulpit. Well, no, it's been changed now. It is a crude playground intimidation factor, but it's not just words with Biden. There's an entire administrative state behind him being run through the philosophy and the practice of the Center for American Progress, where George Podesta, excuse me, John Podesta is sitting in the White House, literally giving out billions of dollars through some of the um, um, bills that have been passed, the the uh, Reducing Inflation Act and the environmental money that's involved in that. Podesta sitting in the White House giving out money to friends. <laughs> to allies uh, by the by the billions of dollars and 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 basically calling the shots and the president is there just basically provoking a fight you know uh, he was made several comments that were almost fight uh, like like words of uh, war here that were going out one that's being talked about often was he kind of alluded that the Republicans were wanting to end Medicare and Social Security And yet there was a day later, a video that emerged that I saw that someone's drawn out of the archives. And it is actually Biden standing back when he was a senator years ago, about 30 some odd years ago. 1975, almost 50 years ago. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That much longer. Okay. I could not remember the exact date. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And he Mm -hmm. actually admits that he was purposefully including Social Security in what would have been the uh, the sunset laws that were going on. And isn't it ironic, Dave, how often that we hear the progressive left, left accusing others of doing things that they are already or already have done or in the process of doing at the time? It's one of their favorite techniques um, is to accuse their opponents of exactly what the progressives are doing to throw people off the trail. And of course, 
Uh, Biden's speech was written to, again, light up the Republicans for a media event because what Biden is basically telling Congress is there's nothing you can do to stop me because the era of the administrative state is here. So get used to it. And I'm here just to have fun tonight. Now, as far as the, the Social Security claim, um, that's that what you're saying is exactly what happened in the speech. And here in Florida, Senator Rick Scott has taken that measure on because it was Rick Scott who is the most recent person to write what Joe Biden was writing 50 years ago, which is that there's got to be a way for Congress to review all federal programs, both mandatory and discretionary spending, and force a renewal on everything or else the train just keeps going on and on and on. So Scott was writing a document about that. It was a singular document by a singular senator, and he suggested that all federal programs should be sunsetted at five years, and then Congress has the responsibility of re-upping those that truly matter. That's not a foreign proposal at all. Biden was talking the same language in 1975, and but now he's decided to take on the entire Republican Party as if the last 50 years of Biden's record on the very same measures don't even exist. Well, he probably picked on the wrong guy by picking on Rick Scott because Rick Scott knows how to defend himself. He knows what he believes in. He's got a, a boatload of money at his disposal and he's running an ad. I'm going to be running a statewide ad campaign, at least here in Florida, maybe, perhaps nationwide, defending himself. So that's already an interesting fight that may even have impact on the 2024 presidential race. That is very interesting that it's right here close to home where all of that was happening. There's uh, just enough time to bring one more thing up before our break. And, of course, we're going to be delving more into some of these other questions that were brought up from this speech. But uh, the very next day, uh, there is footage that's out there already about uh, Biden, and he's giving a speech the day after the State of the Union, and he looks befuddled, he looks confused, he has a microphone in his hand, he sets it down, he picks it right back up again. It's like, it looks very much like he completely lost for a moment where he was, what he was supposed to do, the fact that he was even supposed to be talking. Does, you know, you're seeing this, we're all seeing this happen time and time again. And isn't it concerning that the leader of uh, the United States is in that kind of condition? I don't know any American that likes talking about this out loud, Mike. Um, we're not in a good position. Um, there is something about the age of 80 for the vast majority of us that our best days are past. And there are some people who have such capacity that they can serve as president in the more diminished years based upon experience and the grace of God and um, many other things. Uh, but that's a very difficult thing the voters are going to have to face. Um, we have to remember that this Last campaign for the presidency was conducted from someone's basement in the most unusual circumstances of any presidential election in the history of our country. It was a very bizarre election. And uh, because it was dominated by COVID lockdowns and by a president uh, who never came out of his basement except to get an ice cream cone or make an occasional speech in front of a half a dozen cars um, or more. Uh, it, but very, very unusual. So I, I think the question of the president's fitness is something that we face as Americans every day. I agree. Dave Zanotti is my guest. We'll be back with Dave and in just a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike and you're on The Shepherd. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. My guest on the line with me today is Dave Zanotti. And Dave, I, I, you know, we're talking about these things. These are times, these are situations that uh, just boggle our brains sometimes. 
and cause a lot of people really to be concerned, to be fearful. But I'm thankful that we serve a God who's real. Yeah, and he still owns this place, and we're still the renters. Um, And we think about presidential speeches, and there's oftentimes a tip of the hat uh, from the president uh, at the end of the speech uh, in reference to God. Um, Joe Biden did mention again in his speech that he believes that um, all people are created in the image of God. I think that's important. I think he frustrates many of his supporters when he does that. Um, I think it's uh, uh, he's stating truth there. But before we get any further into the content of, of the president's speech, I, there's a great passage, well, all the passages of Scripture are great, but there's a particular proverb, the eighth proverb, that always jumps out at me every time I have the privilege of reading it. And it begins with the question, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the ways where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. Uh, It goes on in verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way. And the perverted mouth, I hate. This is wisdom speaking. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Mike, um, the scripture is very clear in saying to us over and over again that the beginning of wisdom and understanding is fear of the Lord. Yes. And that is one of the characteristics that characteristics that defines the founding era and the founding documents. The attitudes of the people that came together to start this country, which was not simply a committee vote in a corporate setting to change a few things in the scenery. This was to declare war against the most formidable power in the world. Now, we didn't go to war against them to knock their country off the map. We declared our independence knowing that their response would be war. So we were in a defensive mode from the beginning, outgunned, outmanned, as, as Hamilton, as the music, musical Hamilton says, we had no shot at winning this war unless the God of the universe would intervene on our behalf. And that's to whom the founders appealed. The first flags of the War for Independence era are most interesting to watch. One of the most interesting ones is a flag that has a pine tree and the words, an appeal to heaven. This was the banner under which the Declaration of Independence gathered people to declare their independence so that they could seek God seek human liberty, seek freedom, seek a form of representative government where everyone would have a seat at the table. Now, they did not perfect that model, and it has not yet been perfected to this day, but they started it at the cost of their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors, which they pledged in an appeal to the God of the universe. They knew that wisdom began with God. And prayer was a part of their regular deliberations and discussion of scriptures were as well. This is where we have lost our way in our, in our government. And it doesn't matter who the president is. If we do not approach the concept of government on our knees asking God for wisdom, we are going to wander in the wilderness, no matter how scientific we are, how wealthy we are, or how progressive we are. You know what I think a lot of people do, rather than come back to the Lord in that manner and repent to him, oftentimes that role that they're looking at or the group that they're looking to is the Supreme Court to come up with something that is going to stop the madness. We need to be crying out to God 
And that's what you're saying. And that's what our founders did. They realized that, you know, apart from super supernatural intervention here, we're probably going to lose this thing because they were up against the mighty uh, British army and the British Navy. And it was just nigh on to impossible from a strategic standpoint. But yet they're cry- they cried out to God and God brought them through. And they, they, and you're exactly right. They, they realized that they couldn't not win a war, let alone govern a nation without wisdom from above. That's why they began the words of the Declaration of Independence with we, actually they began with one of the course of human events. But that's why in the, in the context of the second portion of the Declaration of Independence, we find the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. They recognized the creator as the source and the judge of what would happen here on earth. They constructed their worldview in the fear of God. Now, that's not the conversation we heard on Capitol Hill at the State of the Union Address. There was the tip of the hat to God, and and there was the God bless our troops at the end, but the construct is virtually pagan, and many of the responses are the same. We are not seeking wisdom from the Creator. We're playing politics. And, you know, politics is a part of it, the construct of how we're going to govern one another and the processes that we're going to use. But wisdom precedes all of them. And you just saw uh, an encounter where if anyone watched it, and I don't know what the ratings yet are, I, I could know by now, I just haven't taken the time to look. Um, it, it, it was a really bad moment to whatever degree our government on television is supposed to give us some sense of how things are going in Washington, D.C. This looks like an extremely dysfunctional moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There were so many outcries from the crowd, and that division that's in America is seen very clearly uh, while you're watching this speech, while you hear from it. Again, some of the bizarre, I guess, comebacks and turnarounds that uh, the president made uh, are fueling even more discussion than ever before. But uh, there's something else I wanted to ask you about and have you comment on. To me, this is one of those statements. I haven't read a lot of uh, people commenting on it because there were so many other, let's say, more outlandish claims or more brazen Mm -hmm. type of stuff. But one of them was the comment that he made almost in passing that two years ago when he came into office, the economy was basically in shambles. And now it's under this great revival. And I'm thinking, holy cow, you talk about revision. That is a statement. Two years when he came in, he inherited a strong economy, one that was energy independent. And now we're we're seeing gas prices being through the roof and uh, instability in so many areas. With regards to the economy, what what uh, what? How does he think? What do you think? He thinks that this thing can float. The comment like that that he can get away with it. Well, we have to ask ourselves who's doing the thinking, and we know that's the speechwriters who gathered at Camp David. We know that that is something that is being controlled by John Podesta, George Soros, and the Center for American Progress. From the very first words of President Biden's inaugural address, they began to talk about the administrative state. And and the, again, if we miss the point, then they have succeeded in getting us into the weeds uh, and, and missing the reality that what they're doing is running the government as if Congress is just the secretarial office. And in fact, all decision-making, all execution, and all accountability of the government happens from the desk of the Oval Office. This is their mindset. That's what they're thinking. Everything else for them is just theater. And Mike, here's the problem. We have a two-party system in play that was never designed to be the way our government was supposed to work. 
And it's very important to understand that that's another conversation for a longer day. We talk about it a lot on the public square from a historical point of view. Now, um, until the Republican Party or whatever the opposition to the administrative state would be that would arise, whether it's free agency, whether it's a free agency um, a group of members who caucus together in the House and the Senate, whether it's a movement of free agency coming up from the people, uh, as has happened in the past, somebody somewhere is going to have to move into the public debate the recognition and the exposure of what is happening here. This is the current administration attempting to run America as if the Constitution doesn't matter anymore and Congress itself doesn't matter anymore. All Congress does is sign the paper on the mandatory spending. That's all they do. The administration handles it from there. Until the Republicans come out and tell us out loud that our government is off the rails and we have to reconstruct it, until they talk to us in these fundamental points of understanding, then they're just playing along, wanting to get this guy out of the driver's seat and get their guy into the driver's seat, but not change the direction of how the government is actually functioning. And if you sense a bit of frustration in my voice, it's because um, it, we're grateful to have this understanding. It's come after researching for over 43 years of what's really happening here. But, you know, the definition of sanity is doing insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. This has been going on since the 1900s, and it's certainly been going on for the last 50 years in plain sight. But nobody in the American media is talking about it. And there are so many things that fall into that category where they're not talking. They just kind of like pass it by. One area would be that the news media, they're really not bringing up the fact that he did not talk about this whole China balloon thing. Uh, at all, very little bit, except to say we we took care of it and we showed China. Uh, if they start messing with our national security, we're gonna we're gonna step in and be loud and clear. When the truth of the matter is, that thing floated all across the entire United States before they did anything, and the the people of America were not happy about it. Even the secular news agencies, to some degree. We're commenting on that, but again, when you go back to what is being told uh, to us by the president, that is being repositioned, revision, revised, as it were, and we're not getting the straight story. Well, uh, viewing China as a military threat is basically a bait and switch. The reality is China is so deeply invested in our national debt, though they do not control our national debt. They're not the biggest player in our national debt. They're significantly invested in our national debt. They are significantly invested in the ownership of vast amounts of American property and corporations. China is at the table dictating our public policy behind closed doors with consequences, and nobody's talking about it. Yeah, nobody. That's the amazing thing that is just mind-boggling. <laughs> I've used that word too many times, but I, I find myself running short of descriptors of what uh, I can express that causes me these kind of pauses, and I just don't get it. Uh, the security at the border, Dave, that's another thing. Uh, maybe in the balance of this segment, uh, what what did you think, or what do you think these latest things, there are words coming out constantly about uh, the border, those in Texas, those charged with protection, protecting the United States from illegal immigrants. Yet we've opened uh, the border up with a blind eye and they're coming in. What do you think uh, from the speech that we can gather from that, if anything? Well, if we're interested in, in what it, uh, would a solution be to the, a problem that we have with illegal immigration, Mike, I'm going to tell you, and I know your listeners have heard me say this before, you and I could convene a half a dozen people. We could select six of your listeners at random, put them in a room with a great box of donuts and a couple of pots of coffee, 
give them about a four-hour time frame, and together they would solve the problem of illegal immigration in America. It's not that difficult. The problem, because of the vested interests that are at play here, that don't want the problem solved. So why is it that Congress can't solve the problem? Because immigration for them is a tool for different agenda items. Their priorities are completely messed up. And they answer their political parties, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, answer to different forms of corporate interests who are not interested in resolving this problem. The Democrats see open borders as a way of getting more people of color that they presume will be voting Democrat in the future. It's a free voter recruitment for the future plan. The Republican special interests are obligated to speak to corporations that are looking for cheap labor. And they don't want to mess up that mechanism. There are special interests that come in behind the scenes from the political parties that stop the common sense resolution of the problem. The American people could solve this problem fairly and justly and with equity. It's the political parties that will not let the problem be solved. It's been going on since the 80s and they can't solve it because they won't prioritize it and because they're not willing to put down their special interest weapons to solve it. And I think you're giving the recipe for the answer as to why in times where the Republican Party, who were in complete control, still did nothing to reverse some of these things out of existence. And and why the Democrat Party, when they had all positions of power in this last administration and in the Obama administration, didn't prioritize this as the number one thing to fix. They chose Obamacare instead. Oh, and by the way, something that no one has talked about, nobody, 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 nobody has talked about in the speech. We'll do this quick. The president acknowledged that there are now 16 million people using the Affordable Care Act, or he didn't say Obamacare. It's kind of interesting he didn't because everybody else calls it that. 16 million people are now in, in, enrolled in Obamacare, and it was a great triumph he announced. Hey, Dave, let me uh, interrupt you just to say we're up against a break. Let's take that point and okay. start segment three with it in just a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Back again with segment three, Dave Zanotti with me today. Dave, uh, we kind of came up against a break and you were telling me some things that are not being talked about elsewhere. Jump back into that, if you will. Well, one of the, the, the points that I don't, haven't seen anyone else fact check or, or no one else make an issue of so far, and again, my, 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 I only got two eyes in my head too, and we have a wonderful staff of people that work really hard every single day in regards to public policy in America. Uh, but, but even with that number, we may have missed it. I haven't noticed it being discussed, but the president mentioned um, one of the success points is that Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act now has 16 million people enrolled. Only problem is those of us that were in the healthcare fight all the way back to the Health Security Act in 1994, and then once again through the Obama era when the Democrats held the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and they chose, rather than fix illegal immigration, they chose to fix healthcare, or they said they were. The run-up to that fix had a number that was literally being tattooed on the memories of the American people nonstop. They had to do Obamacare. They had to do a nationalized health care plan. They had to take over this massive portion of the economy, and they had to do it right now because of the impending crisis all around us that 47 million people were, were without health insurance in America. Well, now they're applauding the fact that they've got 16 million people signed up onto Obamacare. What happened to the rest? What, 
31 million people, did they disappear? Did they all die? Did they decide that they didn't like the plan? What happened? If, if, if this was supposed to solve this massive problem and it only solved a third of the problem, then is it a solution at all? Nobody called that one out. And this is the example, Mike, that we have that was perfected during the Obama era, which is to never let a crisis go wasted, but to create endless crises and then solutions that are driven by political advantage through the political parties and tell people they solved the problem. And then 10 years later, you look back and go, well, maybe we didn't exactly solve the problem. It's still here. And, you know, it, to me, it's a laugher that that problem, uh, that fix to the problem was called the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I can't think of a, a more wrongly named program ever than what that one was. I don't know anybody that could truly afford it. And it really changed all of health care that we had. I know it wasn't perfect before, but but it certainly changed the entire industry and maybe in a way that uh, it will take several generations, if ever, for it to be corrected. Well, and one way that we'll just put, put one more people say, well, how can we approve that point? One way I can tell you with absolute certainty is the paperwork required. <laughs> that's hard to say at <laughs> this time of the day. The paperwork requirements that that were brought forward in the Affordable Care Act are so onerous that they have driven up costs and, and and inhibited care. And there are doctors that are leaving the field of medicine altogether because they say, we didn't go to school for all those years to simply process paper. And that's a part of what happens with federal bureaucracies run from the administrative state out of HHS in Washington, D.C., so, Dave, you know, the, in the balance of our time here today, uh, there was a Republican, as there always is at the end of the State of the Union, that gives a kind of a rebuttal. And this year, it was the new governor of Arkansas, Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And she basically started off by almost debunking the entire speech. What are your thoughts about the rebuttal and kind of... Looking now more broadly, what kind of rebuttal can we, the people, make after this address? Well, the uh, let's start with the second part of the question. The first thing is we, the people, need to repent because the reality is the clown show that we saw in Congress with the costuming and the, the garb and the, the baiting and the, 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 the boisterousness, all of that tremendously dysfunctional display to the world of the character of American leadership, we're responsible for because we elected those people. We need to repent. We need to ask God for wisdom. And we need to get far more involved in this process than we have ever been. Mike, the single agency that has led America down the most in the last 100 years is the Believing Church of Jesus Christ. Because we have forsaken our responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we have forsaken the concept that public service is service. And we have forsaken and forgotten our founding. Yeah. We need to repent and ask God for mercy. Now, uh, it's interesting because Mike Huckabee um, is a former Southern Baptist pastor. And he's an example of the antithesis of that form of rejection and denial of the truth that has been so characteristic among evangelical Christians. Mike Huckabee has taken his faith into the public arena and served, and served well. And evidently his daughter caught on. You know, they say that truth is best caught, not taught. That's right. And what we heard in her response to the president was a very truthful presentation that was conducted in a tone that you would expect from a leader far older than the 40-year-old Governor Sanders. Now, the speech, I think, was delivered in a tone that was outstanding. I thought it was delivered beautifully as a storyteller. As, as, but I, I will say 
that I'm not sure that Governor Sanders yet understands some of the things that we were talking about earlier today in this in this comment uh, regarding the, the problems that America has fundamentally in regards to worldview and the difference between the administrative state and a functioning constitutional republic. I don't think that she drew the line anywhere near clearly enough. And, and I pray that it's, that it's not for lack of understanding. We all have more to learn every day. But I will say that it was a far sight down the road better by far than the dysfunctionality we saw on Capitol Hill. There's a huge lesson there, Mike. America can be changed from the bottom up. It can be changed from Florida up, from Arkansas up, from the states up, from the counties up, from the cities up. It can be changed. And there's an example of a woman coming from a Christian tradition with a personal faith and a mom and a person who was boldly willing to acknowledge that she's just come through significantly difficult cancer surgery and was unafraid on television to wear a dress where it was clear you could see the scar of the surgery that she had just gone through. It was a very real, very transparent speech, and I only pray God's blessing upon her house, upon her soul, upon her family, upon her mind, that she can continue to walk in the truth, learn true wisdom from God, and do a great job as governor. And it's it was a voice of reason. It was also a mom's voice. And I can't help but wonder if the best voice we need right now in America is the voice of a mom, because the playground fight that we saw in Congress clearly needed a mother to show up and make those kids go home and clean up their act. You know, Dave, we talk often when we have these chats together about what Americans can do, what we must do. And we're kind of at that brink right now where I don't think uh, there, uh, you know, a fight is unavoidable, it appears. So we're going to have to do something. The question is going to be, what is it that we will do in the face of all of these things that are coming at us a hundred miles a moment, it seems? Uh, What are steps right now that Americans must do. Believers, you've mentioned repenting as churches. I agree with that. Judgment begins at the house of God. So we need, first of all, ourselves to take ownership, begin to pray, begin to ask God for forgiveness. Beyond that, next step, what should we do? Well, Mike, first off, repentance is the essential reality. Secondly, you use the term fight, and that was exactly the way that these, this, this conversation is often framed, and it's important we address that question. Um, I have had the privilege over the last 40-plus years of studying American history with some of the best scholars in the country, and, and I, for that I take—I'm so thankful to God. But our work hasn't just been scholarly or scholarship. We have been— in the halls of Congress. We have been on the front row of the Supreme Court. We have been working in many states on many substantive projects. We've been on the ground gathering petitions, being involved in voting processes. We do public policy for a living. Repenting is the first thing we must do. But we, we, we have to understand something from history. The Civil War in America did not have to happen. The American church was the agency that could have kept it from happening. But the American church failed to repent and failed to fix the problems where they could be fixed. And they let the warring Congress turn the nation into a a war zone, into a civil war. We can stop this now. It's only going to happen when people rise up, whether it's from a small group, whether it's from their prayer closets, or whether it's from a congregational model. It doesn't matter. People rise up and say, Lord, how may I serve my neighbor and love my neighbor by laying down my life in public service? We need godly Christians with a biblical worldview and a commitment to truth in history to come forward to serve from the bottom up in school boards, in city councils, in county commission races, uh, in county mayor races, in state legislative races, and in the United States Congress. We need to bring so many people of a biblical worldview into this process that it doesn't matter who the president is because the Congress has so significantly changed and restored again to its right place as the most powerful branch of government that the president can't get a word in edgewise. 
let alone create a, a circus show like he did the other night. And I don't care who the president is. Congress is the most important institution, and that power has to come from the bottom up. This is a call to service, and it is, I'll tell you, I'll tell you up front, it's far less costly than a civil war. It's far less costly than a total financial collapse. It is far less costly, but most significantly, it is the call of service for the Church of Christ in this hour. And if we don't do it, God will not be mocked. Our children, our grandchildren eventually will. If we choose to be old wineskins that refuse to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, God will find someone else. Dave, I guess the question that we all want to know is, do the people of America have the moxie to make that courageous choice? What do you see happening right now? Can we do that? Will we do that? If we start at the right place, Mike, yes. If you start at the wrong place, as Chesterton says, if you start an argument from the wrong position, you'll go mad. If you start for the fact of where's 51% of the people that are going to do that, you've already gone mad because you started at the wrong place. The country was started by 56 people. Uh, this You can see it happening right now. Look at what's happening in Florida. Look what's happening in Arkansas and Tennessee and other states that are changing from the bottom up. No, Florida could change with 100 good people that would make a serious commitment to Jesus Christ to serve. 100 people could change Florida. You say, well, we're already there. No, no. Listen, Ron DeSantis isn't enough, and he's term limited. He's only got a few more years. We need uh, we need 100 more people just like him. You say, well, we need hundreds of thousands. No, you'd be surprised what a remnant of 100 people can do. Remember, Jesus Christ came to earth, spent three years. The Word of God made flesh, spent three years working with 12 people. God always uses a remnant, Mike. Yes, God always uses a remnant. It's not a question of our numbers going in. It's a question of the content of our hearts going to him. We come to him with empty hands. The question is, and look, you say, I don't have the resources. I don't even have the faith. I don't even have the desire to want to obey God. Just ask him for the desire. Ask him to change you. I ask that his story would become my story. So well said. Dave, we're out of time. This is, again, just one of those uh, discussions that really caused me to stop and think and pray and say, God, what do I do with this knowledge now that you've given us? Thank you for that. And as always, my friend, we're so glad to have you part of The Shepherd. Thank you for doing that. Dave, give us your website. Thanks, Mike. You can always find us at thepublicsquare.com. That's the simplest place. And thanks, as always, to the wonderful people who make up The Shepherd Network. Thank you. And friends, we'll see you next time right here on Afternoons with Mike.